Those MIDI files got me trained. I want to say my amen at the end there. <laughs> okay, our New Testament reading for tonight is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. We're continuing on here in Mark 13. It really parallels a lot of the things we've been looking at in the book of Revelation. So I want to continue here. Um, we're going to begin reading at verse 24, but our text tonight will be verses 28 through 31. So let's hear the word of the Lord, Mark chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send His angels and gather together His elect from the four winds, from the Father's part of the earth to the Father's part of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all. Watch. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. A Word that we know is true. A Word that is firm, never changing. A, wor- a Word that we can put our, place our lives upon. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help us uh, this night to hear that Word. And may it touch our hearts and souls through the work of Your Spirit, for we ask it in the name of Your Son. Amen. Beloved people of God, when I was a uh, young man, and that was many years ago, it seems, uh, growing up in this little community church and on the south coast of Oregon, I can remember this Scripture that I just read that we're looking at this evening being the basis for the prediction for the the very imminent return of Christ. I mean, not just soon, but very, very soon. Easily within our lifetimes, and and maybe just in the next few years. Maybe you've uh, read some of Hal Lindsey's books, you know, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, or The Late Great Planet Earth from way back. Uh, And if you have, you probably know what I'm talking about. Now, it's true that, you know, the people at that time were not really so much picking a specific date, but they were sure that the time was ripe. Jesus must be coming, you know, within the next few years or months, maybe even days. And yet, all those time frames have passed. Now, to try to support the idea, it was said back then, and it was actually often repeated, that the fig tree that in this parable that Jesus refers to, this is the nation of Israel. And by that they meant Israel becoming a nation again in 1948 after World War II. The return of the Jews to the land of Israel was an event that Jesus was supposed to be referring to here by the fig tree becoming tender and and putting out leaves. 
Israel had returned to the land. So this must be the case. And and the fact that this generation would not pass away until these things were fulfilled had to refer to that generation that began when Israel was formed into a nation in 1948. Uh, I remember how Lindsay said that a generation is comprised of about 40 years, which meant that Jesus Christ would be coming back no later than 1988, right? Now it's, now it's 2021. It's well over 30 years have passed since that date. It's almost been another generation later. And, and we might even be tempted to kind of laugh at such an exposition of the Scriptures. But I can tell you that back in the 60s and in the early 70s, with turmoil at home, with trouble out in the Middle East, with wars and rumors of wars, with famines and earthquakes in various places, it didn't seem that far-fetched. But this evening we're going to see that that's not what Jesus is talking about here at all. It didn't happen then because that's not the meaning of the parable of the fig tree. But there is a very important lesson for us to be learned here in this parable. As we look at this section about the coming of Christ, He's going to come and judge the living and the dead, we are reminded that we are proclaimed the Lord's death until He comes. Now remember, even the, the sacrament of our the Lord's Supper that we celebrate once a month, generally, we try to, has that very same expectation. It looks forward to the return of Christ. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. And so the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated by the people of God on a continual basis until that great day. When Jesus returns to usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. So, so let's come to the word of God this evening. Let's come with expectant hearts as we look to the hope of our salvation that will one day be revealed, that will one day be fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds in all of His glory and power to judge this world and to bring in the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. That's what we're looking forward to. And so my theme tonight will be that Jesus explains to His disciples here the certainty of His second coming, of His coming again. And we're going to look at the certainty of the sign in verses 28 and 29, the sign that He gives us, and the certainty of the Word, the Word of Christ that He gives us as well. Verses 30 and 31. So after telling the disciples about all the deception, all these troubles, all the tribulation, all the persecution, all the hatred, all the apostasy that is going to come, Jesus says, even though these things must be, they will not continue forever. These things must be, but there's an end in sight. Because the world as we know it is not going to continue on forever and ever as we know it. The end of the age will come when the Son of Man returns in the clouds with great power and glory as we confess to judge the living and the dead. And the first thing that we see here is that Jesus wants to impress upon His disciples that when they see these things coming to pass, when they see these things going on in the world, then they can be sure, they can be certain that He's coming again. That the very presence of these things and the increase of these things should not make us think that He's not coming, but the presence and increase of these things emphatically mean that He is coming and that we can be certain of it. And and the way that Jesus makes this point is by telling His disciples a short little parable about the fig tree. So look at verse 28 again. 
Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And just so we don't think that the fig tree all by itself has some sort of symbolic meaning, we should realize that if you read the parallel passage in Luke 21, it uses the phrase, the fig tree and all the trees. And so it seems clear that the fig tree is not a symbol here of the nation of Israel. That's not what Jesus is using it for. But I think Jesus emphasized the fig tree for two reasons. First of all, the fig tree was one of the most common trees around in Israel. Now, if you were in the northwest where I grew up, you might talk about, if you weren't talking about a fir tree, which were very common, if you were talking about some sort of tree that left, lost its leaves, it would probably be an alder tree. Of course, here in New England, right, we have hardwood trees, maple, the birch, and they produce, uh, you know, that beautiful fall foliage that New England's known for. But in Israel, the fig tree was probably the most common, the most plentiful of all the trees. So that's one reason. But secondly, there's one little characteristic about the fig tree that makes it very suitable for this parable that Jesus is telling. And that's the fact that the fig tree is one of the last trees to put forth its leaves. In fact, that, that really goes well with Jesus does not say here, right, that when the fig tree begins to put forth leaves, you know that spring is near or that spring is here. But he says, when these things begin to occur, you know that summer is near. It's further into the season. Now, you, you probably know this, you know, during the winter, the branches of a tree, they become hard and brittle because the, the sap has stopped running. And yet in the springtime, the branches become tender, the, the buds begin to form, the leaves begin to form because now the sap in the tree is beginning to run. Life is flowing inside the tree and it begins to show itself on the outside of the tree. But Jesus is not talking about this just so his disciples can learn something more about trees or more about the seasons. That's not his purpose here at all. He has a different purpose. And in verse 29, we see that Jesus drives home this parable of the fig tree by telling his disciple exactly what he means by this, why he's referring to this. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. The fig tree in the spring, as its branches become tender and as it starts to put forth leaves, it's a sure sign that summer's coming. And, and that's the purpose of this parable. It's a word picture that points the disciples to the greater truth of the signs of the times and the second coming of Christ. But maybe we should ask the question here. What does Jesus mean by these things? What things is he talking about? Well, he, he means the very things that he's been speaking of already. He means the deception, the trouble, the tribulation, the persecution, the hatred, the apostasy. These things are coming. But these things are signs that the Son of Man, that Jesus Christ, will come in great power and glory. Uh, the word it in that phrase, know that it is near, it could even be translated he. Know that he is near referring to Christ Himself. And how near is Jesus when we see these things happening? He says He's at the doors. He's at the gates. Which means He's, he's just outside. He, he's ready to come in. And so there's a comfort here for us. Because all of these things that we see happening in this world, they, they, they might cause us to despair. 
They might cause us to be depressed. They might cause us to fear. And yet, Jesus says they should really make us rejoice. Because they show us, they point us to the fact that Jesus is coming again. And each day, that end of the age, it draws nearer and nearer. Now, people of God, let's learn from this, first of all, that as Christians, we're not called to just stick our heads in the sand and ignore everything that goes on around us and hope that it works out all right. That as followers of Christ, we should know what's going on in the world. We should keep abreast of the times and we should know the signs of the time. That's what Jesus says. And as Christians, we are called to be active in this world. That we should be working to be a part of the coming of the kingdom of God that He is doing here right now among us. And yet we have to maintain this kind of very delicate balance even as we do so. Because we know that this world's not our home. We are looking for something else. We're looking for that which is to come. We are like Abraham who waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Not for a land over there in the Middle East. He had something far greater in mind that he was looking for. And we are looking for that everlasting city, that city that will never be shaken, that city that shall endure forever because it's the city of God. That's what we're looking forward to. But we have also been placed here on this planet at this time by God to be a part of His work in this world. We should be actively sowing seeds of the Gospel through the preaching of the Word and the teaching of the Word, through evangelism, reaching out to our neighbors, our friends, our our, uh, family with the love of Christ. Because you really know that the most basic way to transform culture is to transform the people of the culture through the Gospel. And that's the business that we are all in as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be about our Father's business just like our Savior was when He walked this earth. That's our calling. And beloved, it's also important for us to know to know about and to pray about our brothers and sisters in Christ who we know are suffering throughout the world for their faith. That we we should be lifting them up in prayer. We should reach out to them with whatever means the Lord gives us. We should not ignore them. The church of Jesus Christ is suffering today in this world. And of course, this is not something new, right? This has always been the case down through history. Let me give you an example. If you've ever read of the sufferings of the Protestants in the Netherlands uh, at the hands of the Catholic Spaniards, Spaniards during the Reformation, you know that such times of suffering can be very intense. It was King Philip of Spain in league with the Pope who wrote this death warrant for three million people. And he proceeded to try to carry it out with this brutal and barbaric work of his troops. He sent his troops into the land. And that's only one example. There are countless more in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. And we see it today. We see Christians being slaughtered by Muslims. We see wars going on in this world with the express purpose of wiping out Christians. They're being raped. They're being tortured. They're being enslaved. They're being murdered. We know that the government forces in in China continue to carry out their relentless campaign to either destroy or subjugate the underground church or the above-ground church or any church they can find. 
The government in Russia has been taking back some of those previous religious freedoms that they may have granted in previous years. And of course, while things have not been nearly as bad in this country in the past years, we do seem to see an increase in the scorn and the ridicule and the mockery of Christians being held up in the press and in the political arena. I mean, it kind of used to be in the background more, it seems like, but now this anti-Christian, anti-church, really anti-Christ spirit seems to be growing and, and taking on new means and new measures to try to silence the church and to try to make the gospel of no effect. And we should expect this. But we should also fight against it because the church must not keep silent in our day. I, th- I think I've told you many times before uh, that when we consider the fact that more Christians have died for their faith in the 20th century, the last century, than in the first 19 combined, and we realize that here now in the 21st century things have not slaughter, slowed down in the slaughter of God's people, we, we might be tempted to kind of look at this and be driven to despair or fear. But Jesus says all these things, all this persecution, all this apostasy that we see in the church today, it all must come to pass. And yet we're not to be discouraged. Because all these things that we see going on around us are signs to us to remind us that Jesus is coming again. In fact, these things point to the the certainty of His coming. As Jesus says in Luke 21, it's uh, verse 28, Uh, A parallel pass, he says, Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Beloved, we can look to the future with a certain hope and a joyful hope because we know that Jesus is coming again. We've been promised this over and over in the script. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 That's the hope that we have. That's what we're looking forward to. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. I'm going to read this, but I I want you to notice that twofold purpose of wrath or punishment and redemption and rescue for God's people. Wrath for the wicked, redemption for the righteous. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 through 10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not go God, know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day, and here it is, to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe. That's our certain and unfailing hope in Christ. And these signs that we might fear, those are signs to us of the certainty of His coming. Now, now not only do we see the signs of the times pointing to the certainty of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in great power and glory, but we also see that the Word of God itself points us to the certainty of this second coming. Uh, The testimony of the Word of God uh, even as the angel, you remember, told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, is that this same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will also come again in like manner as you saw Him go into heaven. You see, if Jesus does not come again, then the whole Word of God is compromised. If Jesus does not come again, there is no hope for us for salvation. We're lost 
And we're without hope and without God in this world. But the Word of God is clear. Now, now before we look at the certainty of God's Word, I want to just take a moment here to deal with verse 30. Because this is the verse that I talked about earlier that's caused a bunch of confusion. Jesus says this, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, this formula, assuredly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you, is a statement that Jesus often uses to draw attention to the truth of about what he's about to say. That It's a phrase that Jesus uses many times to remind us that the truth of God cannot and will not be changed in the very least. But, but the real question here, of course, with this verse has to do with what does this word generation mean? Is Jesus talking about a 40-year period of time that separates one generation of people from another? And if He is, well, wouldn't that be speaking really of that present generation that's alive right there and then with Jesus? Now, we do know that the destruction of Jerusalem which is, is bound up in all these things that Jesus is saying here. We know that the destruction of Jerusalem did occur within 40 years of this time when Jesus said this. This is about 30 uh, A.D. or thereabouts, and the uh, Romans will come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70 under the Roman general Titus. So that's within that. But the destruction of Jerusalem doesn't fit everything that Jesus is talking about here. Not everything that Jesus says here will come to pass with the destruction of Jerusalem. There's still more that must occur, especially His coming again. And of course, no generation of mankind could see both of those events. These two events, the destruction of Jerusalem and Christ's coming again, so far have been separated by almost 2,000 years. Now, there are some who would say, well, the word used here for generation could be translated race, meaning race of people. This race will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And that could refer to the Jewish race that continues to this day, right? In fact, if you, if you kind of think about it, this is truly one of the wonders of the world. No, no people have survived like the Jews. No people, especially a people without a country for hundreds and hundreds of years, have maintained their identity like the Jews have. And, and they've continued in spite of all those who tried so hard to wipe them out. You could also say the same thing about the race of believers. And maybe that's what the word generation refers to here. To believers, God has marvelously preserved His church down through the ages. But as remarkable as that preservation has been, I don't believe that's what this is referring to either. If you look up the word generation in a concordance, you will see that it almost always is used in a negative sense, especially by Jesus. He says, this wicked generation in Matthew 12.45. This faithless, faithless and perverse generation in Matthew 17.17. 17. Oh, faithless generation in Mark 19.9. Uh, Mark 9.19. Uh, Herman Ritterboss says in his book, The Coming of the Kingdom, it becomes clear that by this term generation, Jesus denotes a particular unfavorable disposition of the heart and that the temporal meaning of the word recedes into the background. In, in other words, what Jesus is talking about is the heart condition of the people, not their ethnic condition, not their place and time. He's talking about their heart condition. 
And we have a lot of other references that go with that kind of as well. Uh, Jesus says, but what shall I liken this generation to? Matthew eleven sixteen. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment of this generation and condemn it. Matthew twelve forty one. Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Mark eight twelve. He says to his disciples, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke seventeen twenty five, as he speaks of himself. And so you can see the meaning here is that of an unfavorable disposition of the heart, an antagonism, an animosity against Jesus Christ and the gospel. And this would mean what Jesus is saying here is that this kind of a generation, this opposition to the truth as it is in Jesus, will continue until the day of his return. And so that fits very well with what we've actually been covering in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as you and I look forward to the coming of Jesus, we know that He will one day come. Because He tells us so clearly in His Word that He will do so. And we know His Word is true. We consider the Word of God to be like an unshakable rock. It's our firm foundation. The Word of God is true. It's eternal. It will never pass away. It will never be said of the Word of God that it did not come to fulfillment. That not one word will ever come to the ground unfulfilled. You cannot say that God's word will not be fulfilled. That's just what the the writer of the book of Joshua said after the children of Israel, after they finished the conquest of the land in Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 and 45. We read these words. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that He had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. And what that phrase means there, that the Word of God, uh, that not one word failed, is it never fell to the ground. It's kind of the literal inter- It never fell to the ground unfulfilled. And of course, when we look at verse 31, of the next verse in our text there, we see that Jesus makes that very clear, doesn't He? Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will by no means pass away. The heavens and the earth as you and I know them are not eternal. There is going to come a time when they will pass away. That is, there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth, which speaks of this glorious renewal of the work of God in creation at the end of the age here. The heaven and the earth are going to be radically and completely changed, transformed, recreated, or born again, you even, right? But you see, when it comes to the words of Christ, the words that He speaks to us, when it comes to the promises of God that He's given to us in His Word, we have the sworn statement of God Himself that these things will be, that these things must be. They can never change. Our God never speaks an idle word. God never tells us something that's not true or something that will not happen. We can always trust His Word with all that we are because we know that His Word will never fail us. As Jesus told His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. So, so not even the, the slightest stroke of the pen, not even the dotting of the I or the crossing of the T in the Word of God will fail to come to pass because God has spoken it. And therefore, we can be sure that it will be so. Not one word of God will ever fail us His people. It is as the Apostle Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, and he's quoting uh, the prophet Isaiah that we used for our call to worship tonight. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this, and he adds this comment, now this is the word which by the Gospel was preached to you. The Gospel is an everlasting Word of God, an everlasting promise that will never fail you. Not ever. Ever. Now, people of God, let's, let's learn from this. First of all, the absolute immutability, that is the absolute unchangeableness of God and His Word. You know, if the Word of, of God was like the Word of man, and, and not just man in general, but like our word, like my word, there, there would be no hope for us. We would have no hope of Christ's return. We would have no hope of salvation. If God were like us, we would not have a chance. But you see, fortunately, God is not like us. And so we, we, we confess our own sin, our own lack, right? Because we're not like God. You and I, we, we fail in thought, word, and deed daily. But thanks be to God that He's not like us. Our God is truth itself. He's the very essence of truth. Without God, you and I would not even know the truth. And contrary to what the world will tell you today, the truth of God, it never changes. Truth never changes. That's our rock. That's our sure anchor as we live our lives in this world. God's Word has never failed and it never will. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And beloved, when, when Jesus speaks of a generation not passing away, He's not speaking of, of limiting of a, of a certain period of time. Rather, what He is saying here, what He's speaking of is the certainty of the fulfillment of His coming again. But He's also saying this, that those who reject His Word will, so, will certainly be involved in the fulfillment of those words as well. These are promises not just to us, but to the whole world. All the things that He has spoken of here will come to pass, even on those who reject Him. And so this is a very serious warning by our Savior of, of that which is to come. But you see, but to those who are being saved, to those who are in Christ, this is something else altogether. The, the point that Jesus is making to us is, is really, He's not talking about the nearness of His return in so many words, as He is rather speaking of the certainty of His return. That He will certainly and unfailingly come again. And we will see the next time we're back in the Gospel of Mark that this does away with any kind of calculating when that time might be. We'll look at that next time. But it also does away with something else. It does away with any idea of the imminence 
of the coming of Christ, the nearness of the coming of Christ, that that should in any way paralyze our activity for the kingdom of God. You see, the fact that Christ is coming should not stop us from being about the work of the kingdom of God. Rather, we should simply live with the assurance of the certainty of His coming, rejoicing in it. So when Jesus reveals these things, He's not intending to cause any type of stagnation or passivity or escapism on the part of the church, though the church has often been guilty of this. Rather, Jesus is calling us in light of His coming again to true, sanctified service in the kingdom of God. And therefore, we will see, as He says next time, that we are to take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when that time is. As Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. You see, the the certainty of Christ's return calls us, it calls you and I to service, not to escapism. Because we too must be about our Father's business. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.